So Isaiah 55, the first seven verses. Let's give our attention now to the gracious invitation of the Lord. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be at work tonight to make alive to our souls the gospel of grace. We ask that the minister would preach as he ought to preach as an ambassador of Christ that he would plead and beseech men to turn to God as though God were pleading through him, and that all here would hear the gracious invitation of the gospel to come unto Jesus and have life and rest for their souls, and that we would understand by the doctrine preached how we may extend to others the hope of salvation, saying, silver and gold we have none, but what we have we give to thee. So, Lord, we pray that you would, for Christ's sake, help me preach Christ and him crucified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday in God's providence was the 282nd anniversary of Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. He preached that sinners are as those suspended over the pit of hell as a spider is suspended in its web over a flame. And many of his hearers, a great many of his hearers, were gripped by the Holy Spirit, seeing the pain of hell set before them by the word of God. They all understood that they were sinners and had offended a holy God by the preaching of the word. But also, and sometimes forgotten, is Edwards didn't stop there, of course. He preached the free offer of the gospel. He said to his hearers, and listen to him well, but here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. 
He preached, yes, hell looms for us all. But the door of mercy is wide open in the preaching of the gospel. Christ, as the door of mercy, calling to you, poor sinner, come unto me and I will give you rest. No caveats, no strings. Just come to me and I will give you what you lack. And I think we forget how Jonathan Edwards framed it. He called it an extraordinary opportunity. You are to take this great salvation without price. What better thing can you have and possess? An opportunity, an extraordinary one. Was it from Edwards? No, it was from Christ himself, from God. Such a gracious invitation to every sinner who hears of hell is the heart of the free offer of the gospel. To graciously say, the door of mercy is wide open if you will just come. If you will just fit your faith in Jesus. That Christ is available to all who hear the gospel. And the doctrine, its tenor, its heart, its sincerity from God compels us as his people to take the gospel of Christ to all sinners. Seeing that none are excluded. All sinners are invited. And we can forget, church, that this doctrine is codified in our church's standards, in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, but is quite neglected by many Presbyterians today. And the neglect of the free offer of the gospel by Presbyterians has led to a great neglect of evangelism in our circles. And this is not an overstatement, but... A Christianity that has ceased to be evangelistic has ceased to be Christianity. It really has. And that's a warning to us all. To study and discover the way to proclaim the gospel, to embrace it ourselves first, of course, and then go and proclaim the gospel in whatever uh, callings we have in a manner suitable to it. And so that we would, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel, our theme today is embracing the free offer of the gospel. Embracing the free offer of the gospel. And we'll divide this theme into three questions as our headings. First is, what is the gospel? Second is, what is the free offer? And third are, what are warrants to believe the gospel? What, in other words, right does a sinner have to believe this gracious invitation? So first, what is the gospel? Well, I don't think you can get away from our sermon text by seeing that uh, Isaiah 55 is from God a hearty invitation for sinners as sinners to come and partake of the Lord's mercies. It is a call to those who have nothing to give to come and have everything, to come and have life, to turn to Jesus Christ who is the son of David to seek the Lord while he may be found, while he offers this precious gift without price. This text, we will see Jesus allude to it in John's gospel, is the gospel invitation to come unto Christ as a beggar, as a beggar. As he taught in the fourth beatitude, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that's what Isaiah 55 is proclaiming the blessed nature of the gospel. And if we are reminded of it, we will understand the basis of the free offer of the gospel to sinners. So, for your review, especially with the view to 
the uh, evangelistic nature of the gospel, it is good for us regularly to remember and understand what the gospel itself is. This is the most glorious thing to sinners who believe on Christ, or it ought to be. Uh, So boys and girls, I'll start with you. What does the word gospel even mean? It means good news, doesn't it? And it is news then that is to be trumpeted and heralded to the world. The very fact that it is news means that it must be published. Uh, The Greek word, in fact, used for the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament signifies the activity of a herald. Jesus said in the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel, go ye into all the world and preach, the word there is herald, the gospel, that is the good news to who? Every creature. The gospel, the good news, is to be heralded as good news to all parts of the earth, to everyone. But as part of the declaring of the good news, the gospel herald doesn't begin there. He must begin with the bad news, which is why the gospel is good news, only when you understand the bad news. And what's the bad news? I wonder if our boys and girls know the bad news. Well, you probably remember texts like this, boys and girls, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We have no righteousness. We have no standing with God. None of us. Our righteousnesses, and God speaks to all, Jew or Gentile, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6. And so the gospel preacher, Harold, preaches what? That wrath is stored up against sinners, against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is the bad news. That is part of the free offer of the gospel and must be preached. Bad news for sinners, that the sword of God's wrath looms over them. Judgment, torment, as Edwards preached, as a spider suspended over the flame. It can be yours at any moment, for the gospel proclaims that this night your soul may be required of you. And it is God's just obligation to all men as sinners to be just against their sin, for he is a God of justice. And so the gospel herald proclaims that weighty and terrible news, but under the weight of it, he can't end there. And and sad to say, right, when you look at a lot of men who are out there preaching, maybe even out in the open as as we do, but they stop there. Uh, You're going to hell because you don't do this or you don't do that or you don't do this right or you're a pervert, or whatever it is. Yes, all of us are going to hell if if we don't embrace the good news, though. And that's where uh, the, the minister continues. The good news is that God, out of love for the world, gave his only begotten son. And here's the key word, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To whosoever believeth in him, Christ becomes the Lord their righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. To whosoever believeth in him, Christ is the propitiation for their sins. 1 John 2, verse 2. If they 
Whosoever believeth on God, uh, Christ, the wrath of God stored up against them, they can know was placed on God's Son in their stead. Justice upon Christ, so that the sinner may gain mercy. And this is all of grace. All of sheer unmerited grace. And the herald of the gospel says, any, any, anyone, woman, male, child, anyone who accepts, receives, and rests on Christ by faith have salvation. No ifs, ands, or buts. The sole condition for the sinner to obtain salvation as Acts 16.31 says, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou, what's the next word? Shalt be saved. John 3.16 says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation comes when a sinner believes that they need salvation because they are a sinner and simultaneously believes that the only remedy for their sinful condition is in Christ. And so every sinner in the preaching of the gospel is to believe Jesus speaks to them in Hosea 13.9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Every sinner sees, I have destroyed myself in my sin, but in Jesus is my help, and I believe it, and I am saved. So if that is so, what conditions are precluded from being laid on sinners that they would be able to obtain salvation? Bluntly, let's just be blunt, everything else is precluded, save believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. That means good works are excluded as a condition for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That means as well that the sacraments are excluded as a condition for obtaining salvation. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. You remember the thief on the cross was saved without sacraments, saved by faith. And Paul said, said, uh, himself said that he was sent to preach the gospel and not baptize in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Blessedly as well, this means, and mark this well as we proclaim the gospel, preparationism is excluded as a condition for salvation. There is no degree of repentance required before you come to Christ. No need for even the sense the Lord is working on your heart before you come to Christ. Everything is excluded from being a condition to come to Jesus. Otherwise, we preach the doctrine of the Pharisees who said, this man, speaking of Jesus, receiveth who? Sinners. Right? Jesus receives sinners as sinners. We see this in certain quarters, right? There's this temptation. Well, stop doing the drugs before you come to Christ. You need to do something before you come. Put away your homosexuality and then come to Jesus. Now, we believe, I'll get to this a little later, a man who has true saving faith will put away those things in repentance. 
But several men will shut the door of salvation in the face of sinners when they say, put away some sin, and then you can come to Christ. We have to understand that is excluded. Sad to say, and I've been seeing this more and more, in some churches, many who have attended church for a very long time have never made a profession of faith. Why? Because they think the bar to salvation requires a certain bar of holiness first. That they must behave as a Christian before they can become one. And that, frankly, friends, is insanity. That's insanity. It's impossible, which is why they will never come. If you believe, if we really understood what sin is, the slightest of our sins, if this is the doctrine, put away sin before coming to Christ, no man can come. No man can come at all because the least of our sins will damn us. We preach on the doctrine of repentance, but it is never a condition for salvation because we know this from the rest of the scripture. Can there even be repentance without faith? There can't be. Without faith, it is what to please God? It is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6. Whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. Romans 14.23. If repentance is ultimately a turning to the Lord and a turning away from one's sin, what man can turn to the Lord without faith? Repentance towards God first demands faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is the fruit of faith. Yes, we hear, repent and believe, but we must not make believing contingent on repenting. They just go hand in hand is all. Faith logically must come before repentance. Yes, we do believe that without the grace of repentance, no man can expect to be saved. Absolutely. But we do not demand repentance as a condition to embrace Christ by faith. And that's the distinction. We believe that if true saving faith, which is in itself a gift from God, is in the heart of a born-again man or woman, repentance will follow. Because they see themselves as a sinner, and faith accepts and rests in the fact that they are sinners, and Christ came to save sinners, sinners, and he is not the minister of sin. So that is a reminder, then, of the gospel message we proclaimed. We proclaim, we have all ruined ourselves in our sin both original sin in Adam and particular sin coming as a, out of our corruption. But in Jesus Christ is our help, a full salvation for our sin. And the way the confession speaks of it, and it is a loose condition, I, I might talk on that later, the condition to have his salvation is faith. It comes without price to you, yet it costs Christ everything. He paid the total price of salvation for those who believe. So now that you know the gospel in a nutshell, the question is one now of evangelism. Evangelism, we must remember, is part of our religion. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. He gave us the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel. It is part of our religion. It is our duty to the Lord. And the question is, how do we do it? How do we communicate it to the world? And it is the doctrine of the free offer of the gospel that explains how. And so let's consider that as our second question. What is the free offer? Well, as we have seen that the nature of the gospel is good news, what evangelism is is rather simple. It is the publishing of the good news to every creature, to every man. 
The doctrine of the free offer teaches us to give the gospel as an invitation to all men to receive grace and mercy in Christ indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. It is free to all men, Jew, Gentile, whatever, and it is uh, an invitation to come to have mercy, that the door of mercy is open to all. And that's the free offer in a nutshell. I'll elaborate on it in a bit. The language, as I have already alluded to, a free offer is part of the Westminster Standards. Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 3. I have put it on your bulletin and underlined this portion. Uh, says that in the covenant of grace, he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. You see, this is what we have just heard in the first heading. Right? What does he require of them? Faith in him, that they may be saved. But Christ is freely offered unto sinners, that they would have life and salvation in him. We are to indiscriminately, and using this word rightly, promiscuously, tell all sinners that they may have Christ and be saved. That Christ is available to them. No strings attached, no conditions. All you must do, God requires of you, is faith in him. Christ offered to sinners freely. Come to Jesus and believe in him for salvation. We say it with Isaiah 55. Come and take him without price. All who hear are invited to Jesus for salvation. Not some, not small sinners. Small sinners, great sinners, all sinners. Old people, young people, all people. None who here are without a warrant to take salvation for themselves. And we can even tell them that the goodness of God to them is shown in the hearing of the gospel to them. This is God's goodness to you, that you have heard the gospel. And here is where sometimes controversy erupts. Uh, When we say God is sincere, in making this offer of the gospel to them, that it is the will of God for them to be saved. So take Christ. And you might think that's a species of Arminianism, but it's not at all. This has been the legacy of the Reformed churches. And this is what causes men to chafe at the free offer because, and here's where we will get a little bit of technical tonight, many rightly know the doctrines of reprobation and election. Doctrines deeply rooted in God's eternal decree out of the word of God. The Bible teaches, as you well know, some men are predestinated to eternal life. Ephesians 1.4 says, He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. These are the elect. Others, the Bible teaches, are passed over and are the reprobate. Uh, this is based on God's eternal decree from before any of us were born. Romans 9.11 says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election may stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So we are asked, how can we say to a reprobate? And the answer is actually, the question is really should be framed this way, to a potentially reprobate man, that it is God's will for their salvation even though it clearly cannot be the case that God wills the salvation of everyone because some are clearly predestinated to reprobation. And in addition, we want to handle carefully the doctrine of limited atonement. Christ did not die for everyone. He died for his sheep alone. Twice in John 10, he said, I lay down my life 
for who? The sheep. Only the sheep, the elect, not the goats, not the reprobate. And that's the doctrine of particular or limited atonement. Christ's life and death saves only those he gave his life for, his sheep. And that means that all that he died for are definitively going to be saved by him. He died for the sheep and not the goats. So we might ask the question, and and it is asked, how can we proclaim the death of Christ is available to all men to have then? How do we not become like an Arminian? And this is wrong to say that Christ died for you. We don't know that Christ died for any particular unsaved person. In fact, then they even get more um, concerned and they twist themselves into a pretzel. Should we even proclaim the gospel in church or outside of church? Because we know the reprobate will never turn to the Lord and we know that the elect will come to Christ anyway. So why should we even preach the gospel? It seems like this whole free offer business is unnecessary and unbiblical, and that's the charge, and I hope I am not um, misrepresenting it, but that's essentially, at its essence, the problem some men have, some even good men. But I would say that this is all the product of confusion, because uh, confusion from men who do not heed what the confession of faith says very plainly that the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. And I will say one thing that the Christian church is very often guilty of is ignoring Deuteronomy 29, 29, failing to make the distinction between God's revealed will and his decretal will, where we read, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The average person you meet on the street, their election or reprobation is a secret thing that belongs to the Lord. We do not know. We do not deal with the secret things. His decretal will His will of decree, his will of sovereignty is secret. And that's found in places like Ephesians 4.11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. His working of all things according to his own will, we are not to pry into. He tells us as the church, we minister to men the revealed things. And all of God's instructions in the Bible, and this is a very helpful way, boys and girls, to see this, are his revealed will unto you. For instance, thou shalt not kill is God's revealed will for how many men? Every man. Every man. What is God's desire then, we can say, for all men? That they don't murder. Do we not tell men that? Do we not tell a man, regardless of whether he is saved or not, God's will for you is not to murder. Do we not tell our children, God's desire is for you to be celibate until marriage. But will not some, sad to say, according to God's secret decree, be murderers and fornicators? But don't we say, God's will for you, my son, my daughter, is not to be a fornicator and not to be a murderer. And don't we say these things even with tears? Larger Catechism, question 93, says that the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind. So it is proper to say that these things are the will of God to mankind. However, 
God is never frustrated when his revealed will is not obeyed, as though God is hoping and wishing that all men are not murderers, and yet some are. He sets his revealed will before us, but he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He cannot be frustrated because he has ordained the end from the beginning. So, in the like manner, now I see that men don't seem to have a problem in telling other men, God's will is you not murder. Yet they somehow have a problem when we say God's will is for you to be saved. God's will is for you to be saved. God desires the salvation of sinners, and he is very sincere in saying that. And we are not saying when a sinner does not turn to the Lord that God is frustrated any, le- any more than God is frustrated that men are murderers, blasphemers, and fornicators. So the question is, do we minister to men and women based on God's hidden decree? Or do, do we minister to men like this? Well, maybe God wants you to not fornicate and blaspheme, but maybe he does. Absurd. Absolutely absurd. And yet when it comes to the gospel, we seem to go crazy. And it's like we don't want to tell men that God's desire is that you be saved. The gospel proclamation, and we have to remember this, is engaged in one arena, the arena of God's revealed will. That's the arena in which we proclaim the gospel. That is the arena in which the free offer of the gospel operates. Which is why that just as we say God desires men not to fornicate, he also desires that men do not die in their sin, but turn to Christ and live. Listen to Ezekiel 33.11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Is God sincere in saying that, or is he just putting on a facade? We know that some of Israel will not turn and live. And he literally commands to us to do so. Do you notice that this is what he has to say, but he says that the minister, the prophet, is to say the same thing unto them. That God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What is his pleasure? That the wicked turn and live. He asks, why will ye die? And that's a sincere question from the Almighty to all who hear him. He directs this, not abstractly, but to the whole mass of Israel, a mixed group of reprobates and elect. And Jesus, as God-man, expressed the will of God over Jerusalem. Luke 13.34 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Have you ever thought that Jesus is simply speaking as God does in Ezekiel 33? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? He is Jehovah in the flesh. And this is where some men will try to say, well, you know, his human nature desired that for Jerusalem, but his divine did not. Well, friends, has his human will ever been in disharmony from the divine? No, in fact, that would cause a breach in the person of the Son of God. Jesus ever prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. We cannot say Jesus desired as man the salvation of Israel, but not as God. That would create a breach in his person. 
Yes, his human will is distinct from his divine will, but is his human will, the question is, ever out of step with the divine? The answer is no. So the point is this. The gospel is proclaimed in the realm of God's revealed will, which is that we deal with men in this category and mark this well and never forget it. We deal with men as sinners. We don't deal with the categories of reprobation and election. That is not the category. Those are not the categories we use when we preach the gospel. We deal with men as they are revealed, which is as sinners. You know that they are sinners. All of them, the lot of them, ourselves included. And you deal with how God says deal with sinners. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save whom? Sinners. You know, what we must never do is put in our mind that a particular man or woman is reprobate. You know, you think of the early church. How shocked the early church was to discover that Paul was no reprobate. It would have utterly staggered them. In fact, they were afraid to come to him because they they thought this is the man breathing threats and violence. Instead, we treat lost men and women as sinners, not as reprobate or elect. And because of that, every sinner has a warrant to believe the gospel because the gospel is for sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Rutherford put it this way. The reprobate have as fair a revealed warrant to believe as the elect have. They are men, sinners of the world to whom Christ is offered. In other words, you are never, ever to say, I might, I fear I might be reprobate. You know, there are men who actually fear that. I might be reprobate so I can never come to Christ. I don't think I'm elect. No, that is not the question. You ask yourself, am I a sinner? If I am a sinner, the gospel is for me. Are you convinced you are a sinner? Then take Christ. Take him. Take him without delay. Seek him while you may be found. Take him without price. Take him freely. Take all of him by faith. Every sinner has that warrant. Next, we have to deal with the objection that says, why hold forth Christ if the elect will believe anyway? Well, we must recognize that the Lord has ordained the free publishing of the gospel as the means by which he saves. He ordains the means by which the end will come. We must recognize that the church is to recognize and never forget that God is a God who is pleased to use means. We have what we call are the ordinary means of salvation. That's not theological jargon for the sake of jargon. God himself says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. He has promised a special blessing on certain means to give salvation to his people. And all the time that I've said that faith is the sole condition or the requirement of salvation, we even remember that in Ephesians 2.8, faith is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. But God always speaks from man's perspective. And you leave the hidden things to me, Understand the theology, yes, but you minister in terms of revealed things. He says, your responsibility, and this is how I work, is to proclaim, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Leave the mechanisms to me. Yes, understand them out of the word of God, but you simply do what I say. And this is how we handle the high mystery of predestination, carefully. 
So knowing God is pleased to use the promiscuous preaching of the gospel to bring his elect into the fold, give them faith, we then go to preach the gospel freely to every creature in Mark 16. He says to us, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house be filled, Luke 14. And he uses these exertions from his people as the means to bring in the elect and to give them saving faith. Now, some men particularly do not like the fact that we say we offer the gospel, that to call it an offer implies to them in some way that unregenerate man has the ability to choose God of his own will. Again, the issue is that we are too much, dis, uh, too much enslaved to prying into the secret things, and we're not handling predestination carefully. Thomas Ridgely, in his commentary on the larger catechism, put it very, very plainly that God has ordained men to be treated as a rational creature. And that is how we deal with men, as rational creatures. Right? It is through an offer of salvation and grace that God says he is pleased to work through because the gospel is pure grace. And the communication of the gospel comes as a communication of grace to the sinner, which shows to the sinner the, uh, the picture of the gospel. Yes, we'll see the gospel is also a command, but when it is offered freely, there is something of the nature of the gospel communicated when you publish it that way, that it is purely mercy. So come and take it, right? So God has often spoken to his people this way. He speaks to men this way. Choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua 24. He speaks to men this way. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life, Deuteronomy 30, 19. As Ridgely said, God has ordained that man be treated as a rational creature. So he says in the preaching of the gospel, I set Christ before you, the greatest prize of all, prize of all that you can have freely. He says, choose Christ and choose life. Why would you die? Why should you die? I offer something to you of such great price. All you must do is believe in him and have him. Consider how the offer is given in Romans ten nineteen. If, Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou, here's that word again, shalt be saved. If you take him, if you take him, that's the bargain. Will you take him? Will you? What a bargain that is, friend. If you would simply take him, if you would simply confess, if you would simply believe with thy mouth and thy heart, God has raised this Jesus from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. What an offer that is of grace. It is simple and it is stacked entirely in your favor. What better offer can you receive? It's really framed in that way. I was thinking, I think of scriptures like this. I was thinking of men critical of the free offer. If they did not know that Romans 10 and these other verses from this, uh, were scripture, they would criticize men for speaking in that manner. Saying, why would you die? They'd be criticizing God. That said, if you think of the gospel as an offer, think then again of ministers as heralds. And as a herald, 
will deliver an offer of clemency from a king to a rebellious people, so too does the minister deliver an offer of clemency with the implicit threat as well, right? If you don't take it, you have chosen death. And if you do not take it before death, eternal hellfire awaits for you. That's the bad news. And yet gloriously, the king has sent me with a message that if you take Christ, you take clemency freely, no penance, no works, simply believe and be saved. Though the, one, the offer is free to you and costs you nothing if you will have him, the wonder of the gospel is that it cost, it cost Christ everything. His life and his death to give you mercy. And so we say, come to Christ hungry, come to Christ thirsty, clutching nothing in your hands, empty your hands of the filthy rags of unrighteousness, which are your own works, toss them away, clutch after Christ like the woman with the issue of blood had, and he will pardon you, he will give you mercy, and you will be saved forever. And so the gospel is not only an offer of grace, As I mentioned earlier, it is also grace in the invitation to grace. The Lord often woos us to Christ with sweet and precious promises. Are the opening verses of Isaiah 55 not an invitation? What if it's first verse? Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Does Jesus here invite us in Isaiah 55, the Son of God invite us merely to take some water Like the Samaritan woman thought, some earthly water. Isn't that what she thought? Oh, I'm going to have some earthly water. Or does he invite us to take the grace of God and the blessings of the gospel here in this invitation, Isaiah 55? Well, it is the grace of God in the gospel. Verse 3 says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Now, I don't know if you recall this text essentially being hearkened to in the New Testament. But do you remember the son of David, Jesus Christ, speaking according to Isaiah 55? Didn't he fulfill this great invitation in John 7, 37? In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What is that but Isaiah 55 in the heart of the Redeemer? Drink of the waters of salvation freely. And he invites who? Any man. If any man thirsts, does he say, I know who my sheep are here, Uh, you come to me. He says, if any man thirsts, come unto me. It is the free invitation to salvation. Does he not invite every man, even you tonight, in Matthew 11, 28, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does he exclude any or does he invite all? He invites all, all ye that labor. Are these not great and gracious, precious invitations for sinners? They are. Or if you flip to the very ending of your Bible, you would hear from Revelation twenty-two seventeen, where the spirit and the bride say what? Come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take what? The water of life freely. Freely. 
Is the very ending of the Bible not a demonstration of the free offer of the gospel? A hearty gospel invitation. Does it not inform us how the gospel is to preach? And let's, let's think about that for a moment, friends. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit preaches this way through the church. It is God who preaches this way through the church. The spirit and the bride say, come, freely take of the water of life. The gospel then surely by the Holy Spirit's own example is an invitation to lay hold of Christ. And the Holy Spirit then we believe moves mightily when men are shown to be bankrupt sinners through the preaching, but also invited to take the water of life freely. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And even... The invitation is not just gracious, but the invitation is, staggeringly enough, God's goodness to you in even hearing it. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For, I, for he saith, I have heard thee in an accept, a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says, in other words, do not receive the grace of the invitation in vain. Receive not the grace of God in vain. And he has salvation in view. He also said in Jonah 2.8, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. There is mercy that is yours, not because you have salvation, but the promise of salvation is, in fact, a merciful act of God towards sinners. So the free offer of the gospel is not just a doctrine abstractly. It also informs our own heart towards the lost. We ask the lost, why should you die? Why should you not turn and live? Because that is God's heart towards sinners. Now, some say, but is the gospel not a command? And yes, it is. Absolutely it is. A command as well as invitation. And the way that this goes is if you will not take the invitation, you must take it as your solemn duty. The duty of all men is to believe. And this is why it is part of God's revealed will for all men. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Men of all nations, tribes, and tongues have the duty to believe the gospel. Paul speaks of the obedience of faith in Romans 1 and Romans 16. And so I'll speak of that in our last heading, and I do think I have enough time to deal with it, so I'll deal with it there. So that said, as we conclude this second head, let us remember that the free offer of the gospel publishes promiscuously to every sinner a hearty invitation from God declaring the will of God for them is to come to Christ and be saved. And that they are invited to come to Christ without price, and he will give them rest. They are to come clutching nothing but Christ and believing on him. That God is sincere as he declares his desire to save sinners as sinners in Christ, even as we warn all men that God will show vengeance to those who refuse his son. Well, with that, then let's consider our last question which are what are the warrants to believe?
And when we ask this question, what are the warrants to believe? We are asking, what right does a sinner have to believe the gospel invitation to themselves? In other words, do I have the right to take Christ for myself? And every person must know that they do. And I'll give you four warrants. There are others, but these are loosely based, and I won't go into detail, but these are loosely based on the warrants to believe in the sum of saving knowledge, which often accompanies the Westminster Standards. Um, And I want you to hear them so that you may see Christ may be received by all sinners, even you, even you. This gospel is for you, friend, if you are a sinner and if you are outside of Christ. Children, this gospel you are going to see is for you as well if if you think you are unworthy to come to Jesus. And the first warrant then is that all men are invited to Christ. He excludes none. The hearty invitation, Ho, everyone that thirsteth. He calls to the destitute, those who are destitute of righteousness. And is that not you, friend? So many fear to come to the Lord because they have no righteousness. They are more honest than many other sinners. And they see that I have no righteousness of my own. But is that not you and me? Are we not destitute of righteousness? Is that not the case? If so, he says, come and buy without price. Do you not have a right to salvation because you have no righteousness? Yes, if you will come. And is it not a feast that he promises to you? Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Does he not say, if you are weary and you labor and in vain, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, all who come to him, I will in no wise cast out. Did we not hear that Christ came into the world to save sinners? Is that not your warrant to come, sinner? What other warrant do you need? You are a sinner. Christ saves sinners. That's your warrant, plain and simple. So what is keeping you then from salvation, sinner, but your own hardness of heart? Come to the Lord. Second warrant is God's earnestness that sinners be reconciled to him in Christ. We think of it this way. Would God have given his only begotten son if he were not earnest for the salvation of sinners? 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. That word is plead, beg. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now God is not begging like some sort of please love me kind of sorry, pathetic character. But he is pleading with all men to take Christ because he is earnest for the salvation of sinners. If you will come, God will remain blessed over all forever, but he expresses his heart of mercy, that he is sincere that you be saved. He is earnest, and may God help me and every minister to relay that earnestness to you. Turn to him. Did you not hear him in Ezekiel? Why should you die? Turn and live. Third warrant, and this is, we come back to something I left off. God gives command 
to men to believe the gospel. I'd cited 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to meditate. I've spent some time meditating on this. What is the beauty of the gospel as a command? It is a further warrant to believe it. It strengthens your assurance to believe him, that God would go so far as command you to believe and be saved. You know, we think of commandments always in a negative light. That's our sin. But a commandment to believe for your health, that you be saved. You know, and this is where the sinner finds great assurance. Because if you have been convicted by the commandments of God, you will feel perhaps a lack of assurance that I can come. But the same God that commanded you and wounded you with the Ten Commandments also commands you to believe on Jesus to be saved. So what blessed assurance to believe is yours if the commandments have wounded you that another commandment says, for all of your sin, I command you to go to Jesus and be saved. It's incredible that you can say that it is my duty to be saved. It is my duty to be saved, my duty to God. The fourth warrant, the assurance that eternal life will be yours because Christ was given for those who believe in the eternal covenant. John three thirty five through 36. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Your warrant is that God has given Jesus to be the Savior of sinners, and he did so not in the Incarnation, but that the Son made a pact with the Father in the covenant of redemption to do it from before you were born, from eternity past. And his covenant is that in Christ is life and that the Father is satisfied with Jesus. And so he holds out Jesus Christ to you, that I am satisfied in this Jesus, and if you will believe in him, I will be satisfied that all of your sins will be satisfied by Christ. Believe in my provision of the Son, and you will have everlasting life. And that is the term of the covenant, and God cannot renege on it. And that is your warrant to believe. He asks you if righteousness came by the law. Why did I ever slay my son? So stop striving from the law. Take my son by faith. Believe in him and have everlasting life. So why are any of you, doesn't matter how old you are, boys and girls, or how old you are in the other direction, why are any of you holding out on Christ? Why are any of you not in him? Has he not invited you heartily tonight in so many ways to come and have life in him? Why would you die in your sin when you can simply believe on the Lord? What is it you have to ask yourself that is keeping you from him with all these warrants to believe? With all of this grace heaped upon grace, it is only the hardness of your own heart to not believe in Jesus Christ. You need to turn to the sweet Savior tonight who is mighty to save, gracious to sinners. Turn to Christ and he will have mercy on you and our God will pardon you. As Edward said 282 years ago yesterday, 
do not let this extraordinary offer pass you by. It is sad that men will on the television plead with you to buy a kitchen gadget and you will call the number, but you will not turn to the Lord who offers himself to you. Turn to him and be saved. And if you have been saved, maybe you've forgotten the sweetness of the gospel. So praise God for his heart to save sinners like you. And may this doctrine then aid us as the church in our evangelistic efforts to with more fervency and with more freeness and fullness proclaim Christ to the lost, treating them not as elect or reprobate, but as sinners. Preaching Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chief among them. Amen. Let us arise for prayer and may God bless the preaching of the gospel.